This morning, I have the esteemed honor and privilege of introducing our chapel speaker, who is none other than Reverend Liz Walker, or Reverend Elizabeth Walker. Reverend Walker began her career in 1974 as Director of Public Affairs for KATV in Little Rock, Arkansas. From there, she worked in broadcasting in Denver, San Francisco, and then Boston in 1980. She became the first African-American weeknight news anchor in Boston and continued to anchor for almost 20 years. She has been actively involved in human rights in Sudan, as well as helping those in the homeless population, domestic violence victims, people living with HIV and AIDS, and at-risk youth. Reverend Walker graduated from Harvard Divinity School in 2005 with a master's focusing on religion and women's issues. She then went on to become an ordained minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. She currently is the pastor and director of the Social Impact Center at Roxbury Presbyterian. So I present to some and introduce to other Reverend Elizabeth Walker. everybody. Or is it morning? Morning. Sorry, I've been up a long time. Good morning. Help me out. Good morning. morning. Thank you very much. I know you have no idea who I am because you're too young. You're too young. Uh, Does anybody remember me on TV? How could you possibly? Oh, there's a couple old people in the back. God bless you. I was back on television, back in the day, I was on television news for 123 years. That's a lie. Okay, okay, okay. But I was on television. I started, now this is all made up. Now that I know that I'm at a religious school, I have to be careful about my lies. I started television when it was black and white. That's not really true, but it usually gets a laugh. But I, I did start in television when there were only three channels. That seems odd now. Not only were there only three channels, you actually had to get up and go change those bad boys. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Television news was my life. But I have since uh, been called to a greater life. And I want to tell you a little bit about it. But I want to tell you in a way uh, that's working for me right now, because I've done many things in my life, and uh, television news certainly was one of them. I was uh, working as a humanitarian in Sudan, one of the world's most troubled countries, and now I'm a pastor of a church. But I live in Jamaica Plain. I don't know. Does anybody know where Jamaica Plain is? Oh, okay, 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 okay. Great, 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 great. I live in Jamaica Plain, and I live right on the Jamaica Way across from the pond, Jamaica Pond. And it's a lovely, eclectic neighborhood uh, with all old mansions and triple-deckers and all of this, Uh, all kinds of people, old hippies like I am, young people who have babies. It's a wonderful, wonderful neighborhood. And it is bordered on the western end, where I live, by this uh, thoroughfare that's called the Jamaica Way. And the Jamaica Way winds around through the neighborhood. And it's beautiful. But the Jamaica Way has outlived its usefulness. I imagine when this area was first developed back in the 19th century, uh, the Jamaica Way was wonderful with horses and buggies, and, and you could kind of meander into the city of Boston from this lovely neighborhood. Well, now, the traffic on the Jamaica Way is unbelievable. And you can barely move on the Jamaica Way, especially in the morning during rush hour in the afternoon and the evening during rush hour. So there's all these cars on the Jamaica Way. If I want to enter into this traffic with my car, I live, unfortunately, on a street that has no light. 
And so I'm at the mercy of the traffic that's going on the Jamaica Way. And I have noticed in living in this neighborhood for about three or four years that during rush hour, nobody, nobody on the Jamaica Way wants to give me a break. And I don't know how they drive here in this community, and I'm sure they're very loving and kind and give you all kinds of breaks. I'm sure 93 is very good and people are open. But on the Jamaica Way, I have seen people turn into heathens on the Jamaica Way. It's, it's unbelievable. And the thing that's so ironic is they're not even going fast. The traffic is moving slow. So you're sitting there in your car and you're trying to get in and you're trying to get attention and people aren't looking and women are putting on makeup and, and they're, you know, or doing their iPad or iPod and doing everything but giving you entree onto the Jamaica way. Nobody makes eye contact. If you talk to traffic engineers, they call what I'm asking for as a courtesy space. If you let someone in front of you in your car in a traffic jam as you go anywhere, that's called a courtesy space. But I call it grace. I call it grace. I call it grace. And I believe that we're living in graceless times. We're living in times where people don't care about other people. People don't want to give people a break People don't want to let people in. The Hebrew Bible defines grace in terms of God's mercy, debt cancellation, land restoration, the year of Jubilee. The Apostle Paul, of course, insists that a salvation comes to us by grace alone. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The grace, of course, that speaks most boldly to me is through Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross. The music here this morning that, that made us focus on the cross, that is the grace that I know, the grace that called me. That is God's endless forgiveness. I don't know about you, but this notion of grace does me no good if it stays in the Bible. It has to come out of the Bible. It has to be real for me. If we're just reading 2,000-year-old stories and they're making us feel good for a moment, that's all right, but that does not do me good. I need something that helps me live. And so this notion of practicing grace is what I'm working on now. Not just for me, but I'm trying to start it as a movement. The roots of grace in Greek, of course, are found in the word charis, charity. Now, charity is a word that we have unfortunately taken in this culture, and it has a rather demeaning uh, ambiance, a rather demeaning attitude. It, it means we take care of the other. We give charity to poor people or people on the other side of the world. It has been lowered somehow. We can do that with words. But in its, in its biggest terms, in its greatest terms, in its God-filled terms, it means rejoicing. It is something huge and wonderful beyond goodwill, beyond forgiveness, Author Philip Yancey calls this grace, this chorus, this charity, the world's last best word. And that's how I like to think of it. You see, we've kind of messed love up. We act like we know what love is, but I'm not so sure. We, 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 we say we love each other, but I'm not so sure we really know what we're talking about. We confuse love with power. 
We confuse it with submission. We say, I love you, baby. And I love the Red Sox, too. And there are different definitions of love, but I'm, I'm not so sure that we have probed love enough. So my theory is to break it down and just take some of the principles of love. And grace, to me, is one of the strongest principles of love because it holds its own. It is a word that, that, that holds its own. It's, it's accommodating. We, we talk about a grace period. We give people a little more time. We talk about gratuity. We give people a little extra something, something in the restaurant. Gracious people are beautiful, accommodating people. Grace is God's unconditional mercy to us when we don't deserve anything. Grace holds its own. And I like to think of grace as something freely given, something unearned. I'm not giving it to you because you deserve it. I'm giving it to you because that's what God has given to me. Grace, giving the world a break. First Peter 4, 7, 11. The end of things, all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray above all, love each other deeply because love covers up over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace. That is what we are called to do. So practicing grace then is motivating and inspiring God's spirit. Now I come out of television news. If you want to know about a graceless place, watch TV news. There is no grace on television. As a matter of fact, television is all about confrontation. Television is all about revenge. How many of you watch Fox News? Come on, you know you watch it sometimes. It can be entertaining. I'm, I'm no political statements. But when you watch Fox News, have you ever noticed if you watch it for about two or three hours, you, you turn it off and you just feel like you want to slap somebody. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? It's, it's true. Television is here to offer you black and white, to offer you right and wrong, to offer you confrontation, conflict. That's what TV's about. That's why you hear very little good news on television. Who knew that God would have me doing the news to prepare for the good news? TV was not about that. And I loved it. I loved television because I made a lot of money. This was back in the day. So back in 2001, I went on a story to war-torn Sudan. I don't know if you've heard about Sudan, but back in 2001, it was a story that exploded on the world's uh, journalists, on the world's population. South Sudan is now the world's newest country. Back before 2000, it had been a big, the largest country in Africa at war against itself. There was uh, Arab against African. There was Islam against Christianity. There was black against uh, all other kinds of colors. There was poor against not poor. The haves against the have-nots. It was a conflicts of many stripes and many kinds. Millions of people had been displaced. Millions of people had been slaughtered. So I went there on a story. Some people from Boston, some humanitarians, some human rights activists, and some religious leaders were going to investigate allegations of slavery.
When we got there, and we went to one particular village in the summer of 2001, we talked to people who had seen things that you never want to see in your life. And the experience was transformative to me. I had never covered a story in a war zone. I had never been in place in a place where people had so little. I had never been confronted with people who had been uh, hacked, had their limbs hacked off or had been blinded by bullets or whose villages had been destroyed, whose children had been buried alive, whose husbands had been hacked, had been macheted to death. I had never seen this kind of, of life. And it just stopped me cold. I was in a position of trying to tell a story. I'd gone there as a reporter. But there was something a little wrong to me about standing back and remaining objective, so they say, and telling a story from this removed position when people are in such great need. There is a room for journalism, absolutely. And, and journalists are there to, to light dark spaces in the world. But there comes a point in your life, if you are blessed, if your eyes are wide open, when you feel the need to do something more. I don't know if you remember Katrina, when Katrina the hurricane hit, and we watched on television as people were drowning in New Orleans area, and people were on rooftops, and they were waving flags and asking for help, and it was a desperate situation, and it was broadcast live 24-7. And reporters were removed, and their job was to tell you that somebody's drowning. There's something wrong with that to me in the, in the, in the realm of grace. And I think that at some point, you step out of that comfort zone, that removed zone, and you decide to do something. And I believe that is when you answer God's call. Now, I knew nothing about Africa, and I consider myself a very intelligent woman. I've been to college. I've been to grad school. I'm, 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 I'm well-read, and I still knew nothing about Africa. And I dare say the world today knows very little about Africa. Now, all I knew about Africa was what I had seen on TV. Now, I don't know if you watch cartoons. You're much too mature. But back in my day, I watched... Tarzan movies. That's now a car cartoon. Does Tarzan still have a cartoon going on or a movie? Or does anybody know who Tarzan is? Uh, so Tarzan is this huge, beautiful man who is king of the jungle. And that's all I knew about Africa. And every Saturday morning, as a little girl back, way back in the day, black and white TV, I, we just got that TV, first TV in my neighborhood, I would watch these Tarzan movies. Johnny Weismuller, that's how old I am for somebody who's old in the room. I know there's one person who knows who Johnny Weismuller is. Johnny Weismuller was one of the first Tarzans. And every Saturday morning, Johnny Weismuller, as Tarzan, would be chased by about 500 Africans. You never knew who they were. You never knew what they were mad about. They were just hoogabooking through the jungle trying to catch Tarzan. Now, that's my only image of Africa. And every Saturday morning, in the nick of time, Tarzan would grab a vine. I think he still does that. And he would swing across a cliff. And this is the only time you will hear a preacher do this in your life, probably. He would go, oh, 
this at home, you will not get a church, I promise you. But he would grab the vine and he would go off the other side and every Saturday morning right behind him, 500 Africans would grow off a cliff. What was that about? That's all I knew about Africa. All of the continent was that there was no future in being an African. So you go to this country, there's a war going on, and you have a limited view of who these people are. These are Sudanese. They're not Ghanaian. They're not Kenyan. They're not just Africans. There's many countries. You have to learn a little bit about the people. You have to get out of your comfort zone. You can't be afraid. You have to talk to them. And most importantly, you have to look them in the eye. And when you begin to look in people's eyes, you begin to see them differently. And if you look at them through the eyes of your heart, you begin to see them as God sees them. And when you see them that way, there is nothing that separates you and them. Nothing. But media would have you believe. There's a voice in the world that would have you believe that everybody's your enemy who doesn't live in your neighborhood. And you need to batten down the hatches and close the doors and, and shut off the borders because they are coming. Well, I have seen enough of the world to tell you that there is no them and us. There's only us. And we are in dire need of grace. We need to know what it is. We need to know how to practice it. We need to know how to pass it on. The thing that changed me about Sudan was not the war. The war was horrible. It was not the, the survivors in the sense of physicality. It was a sense of resilience that I found in the people who, who, who offered hospitality as a sacred way of life. That means that you could go into a village in the midst of a war and it was, it was a sacred right to give you everything from people who had nothing. This is biblical. This is biblical. Hospitality is how we're supposed to live. This is what God calls us to and this is an expression of grace. It changed my life that people who would suffer so much could still be able to give. I remember one of the first things that happened to me there was trying to take my pictures of this Boston group investigating slavery in these villages. We would go to a village, and they would start interviewing people, and at one point I see a woman. She's pounding grain, and this is how she gets her food because there's no there's no drugstore, there's no grocery store, you grow your food in the bush, in the, in, in the uh, jungles. And, and so she had grown her maize in her little compound with her family, and she was pounding her maize into flour that would become bread and some kind of porridge. And I wanted to get a close-up shot of her. And so I got up close, and I didn't see the bowl that was on the ground where she had put the flour. And I accidentally kicked it over. And in just that second, I ruined a whole day's meal 
because women work in these communities four to five to six hours pounding the grain. And I got, I got scared. I didn't know what she would do. And she fell to her knees and tried to put the spilled flour back in the bowl. And I fell with her and tried to help her out. It was a useless exercise, but it made me feel so small. Later that same day, we had to move from one village to the next, and the truck never came to pick us up. And so the women in the village volunteered to take our supplies on their heads eight miles to the next village. And there was this woman. And I thought, why, why would she do that? I just ruined her whole life. We're not paying her. We're not offering her tips. American dollars go nowhere in the middle of the bush. And it dawned on me she had some natural instinct for grace. She was willing to just accept me as I was. She was willing to give me a break. I believe the world is called to grace. I believe God calls us all to grace. But we have to have our eyes open. We have to have our hearts open. We have to be willing to see past the subterfuge and, and, and the, 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 the veils that, that separate us to realize that you are not my enemy. And whoever you are, I can still offer you this hospitality that I call grace. I'm now the pastor of a small church in uh, Roxbury, in probably one of the toughest neighborhoods where gang violence has overtaken our blocks. And some days I have to cross police tape to get to my car. And young black men are killing each other. And it's based on revenge. That's what gang violence is based on. Your grandfather shot my grandfather. Your father shot mine. My uncle's doing prison time because of what your uncle did. And I'm going to get you. And sometimes they don't even know what started it. And that sounds really silly until you think that that pretty much sums up the foreign policy of the world. We deal in revenge. That's what's happening in the Middle East. That's what's happening in Africa. And sometimes it happens in Congress. We have got to learn what grace is. In its, it, its most benign form, it is civility. It means that on that Jamaica way, I'll let you in because God is in my heart. And this sounds like a really tiny thing to do. But when you speak of God, everything matters. Everything. So you can't just go to Sudan and try to change the world. You better change the world just where you stand. And that is why I suggest that we all learn to practice grace. Perhaps in the practicing, we can be led to love. I have one more story and I will let you go. So halfway through our work in Sudan, and we worked there for 12 years after being inspired by one of the leaders of this group that I covered that first year, we, we were going back and forth to a village. We had developed a relationship with these villages, and we ended up building a girls' school, which was just the extraordinary grace of God. We built a girls' school for about 800 girls who had never gone to school before. 
But halfway through this developing relationship and figuring out how we could help these people and, and, and trying to get this school up in this little village and, and deep in the bush, we lost our luggage. The woman I travel with, Gloria White Hammond, who is my shero in the world and the visionary of this organization that I helped co-found called My Sister's Keeper. We lost our luggage, and Gloria said, well, we have to decide what to do. We're in Nairobi now, and we either go forward into the bush four hours with a charter flight, or perhaps we should go back. You see, you have to take everything into the bush with you. You have to take water. You have to take your tents. If you have food, you take food in, because these people have nothing. These are the least of the world. And so here we are making this decision. Do we go forward with nothing or do we go back? Gloria said we go forward. Let's just go to the store. If we can find it before the charter comes, we will buy some t-shirts. We will get some water. We're only going to be on the ground in the bush for four days. And I'm thinking, let's go home. <laughs> let's go home. But we went in. The people somehow heard that we had lost our luggage through the satellite phone or the interpreter or what have you. By the time we got to the village, they knew we had lost everything. And so I will never forget this as long as I live. They come to meet us at the plane, and the old women bring pots of goat and okra to feed us. And the little children bring these sticks that you can actually clean your teeth with. And, and the young women bring these brightly covered cloths for us to dress in. And the men have, have built these two cots, hand-hewn wooden cots. Now, there's very little wood in this part of the world because of the wars. They've used all their resources, but they found this wood and they offered it to us. And it dawned on me that we had gone to save Africa. And Africa saved us. You see, there is a reciprocity in God's grace. The more you give, the more it comes back to you. And so of all the things I want you to think about today, whether you are on the Jamaica Way, 93, or in the jungles of Sudan, just be open to God's grace because it is boundless. God bless you. Let us pray. Most gracious God, most gracious God, most gracious God, we are awed and humbled by your grace. Help us to see it in the world and then help us to be it. Let the people of God together say, Amen. Let's give God some glory. Praise God from...